Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Stephen Carrison, and if you're not familiar with him, Stephen is a mastering engineer based out of Liverpool who runs Tall Tree Audio Mastering. He's also a member of the Weird Jungle Mastering Collective, which was created by one of our previous guests, Katie Tavini, who was on episode 128. And if you're interested in learning more about the Weird Jungle Mastering Collective, definitely check out Katie's episode because we definitely go into all of that stuff in that one. In this episode, though, Steve and I have a very casual chat all about the mastering process and what it looks like for him, you know, what kind of setup he's working with and why he chooses to use the equipment that he does. And we try to get to the core of really demystifying this whole concept of mastering being a dark art. Like, what really does that mean? What actually goes into the mastering process? And, you know, why is mastering an important part of the process? And why should you master versus trying to do it on your own? And we also get into the topic of just creating a positive mastering experience, both for the musicians who you're working with and for yourself, because everyone involved in the process needs to be fulfilled by the experience. And part of that experience is not only having a great product at the end of the project, but also having a great experience in terms of lines of communication and social interaction. Because for mastering engineers, we tend to work on our own. We'll work in very isolated rooms and we don't really talk to other people. But part of creating a great experience for the customers and for yourself is having that open line of communication with your clients. And when you do that, it really makes everyone feel a lot more comfortable because otherwise they could just go to like an online mastering house or like, you know, use something like Lander or whatever, God forbid. But when people do that, they're really just kind of putting blind faith in someone else's judgments or in a computer algorithm's judgment. And that's not what this is about, right? At the end of the day, we all want to have music that sounds as good as we anticipate it to sound and as we envision it to sound. So from a client's perspective, Having open lines of communication with your mastering engineer is really important. And from a mastering engineer's perspective, hearing that input from your clients can definitely impact the decisions you make. And at the end of the day, everyone ends up with a better product because you're all on the same page. So yeah, in this interview, Stephen and I get into a whole bunch of stuff, and I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a great conversation. So with that said, let's just jump right into the episode. Stephen Carrison, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? I'm great, man. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thanks for being here. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background, can you give us a little bit of that story on who you are, what you do, and how you ultimately got into mastering and all the cool stuff you're working on? Sure. So, uh, yeah, my name's Stephen Kerrison. I'm a mastering engineer. Um, I work out of my studio, which is called Tall Trees Audio Mastering, here in Liverpool in the UK. I also work as part of the Weird Jungle Mastering Collective um, with Casey Tavini and Izzy McPhee, two other fantastic mastering engineers. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Awesome. How did you get into mastering? The long way is the answer to that, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like a lot of people that I imagine you speak to, because it tends to always be the same kind of story. um, I started off in bands um, from, you know, like a really young age, you know, playing in punk bands. And um, I used to play in like a, 
weddings and functions band with my dad. Um, nice. You know, when I was like when I was a teenager and stuff like that. You know, doing my own stuff on the side. I was really into like indie and punk music when I was a teenager and stuff like that. And that turned into kind of a like a very big lifelong pursuit to try and to try and make that work. And um, I moved to. I grew up on the Isle of Man and I moved to Bristol when I was about when 19, 20, something like that. Uh, and I was there for many years and did some really great stuff. I was in bands that I'm really, really proud of. And so kind of varying degrees of success for one, for one of a better word. Um, I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, success is relative, isn't it? But, um, you know, I played a lot of shows, did a lot of touring, you know, made some great friends. It was really great. But, um, once I'd been doing that for quite a long time and it hadn't, um, it hadn't ever really become a, like a full-time living. Like I'd always have to, you know, come back from tour and do a job or something like that, which was, you know, which is fine. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, um, but I, I kind of wanted something more. And I also stopped enjoying going out on tour quite as much as when I was younger. Uh, cause you know, got a bit older and I got married and I got a dog and, um, you know, I have a son and it was just, uh, you know, standing at the door with your bags, knowing that you've got to go away for a couple of weeks just to make some money. It just started to lose its appeal a bit. Um, so studio based work was, was where we ended up. Basically I had a, I had a big chat with a mate, went through it all uh, and the long and the short of it is my, my friend just suggested, he just said, Oh, do you, you ever thought you might be, might make quite a good mastering engineer. I was like, Oh, I, I hadn't actually, but that looks like something I should look into. So, um, so yeah, for the last, uh, like quite a few years now, that's what I've been pursuing. That's amazing. Did you have actual like the studio experience before that? Or were you just like, you went from just being a musician to all of a sudden like, yeah, maybe the studio thing sounds cool. I'll just, I'll learn how to be an engineer at this point. Well, I mean, obviously I'd spent a lot of time in studios Mm -hmm. um, over the years. You know, I'd recorded plenty of records and spent a lot of time around, uh, you know, in those environments. I must admit though, I was never hugely kind of, I wasn't I wasn't like the guy in the band who was super into recording everything and sort of like really into the technical side of stuff. That wasn't me at all. Um, But I think, I think seeing how it worked and and obviously just, just knowing what it is like on the other side of the glass so thoroughly is a really, is a thing that I kind of, um, that's, I feel has been really important to, to like, to me being good at my job. Of course. Yeah, I mean, when it's it's we're in a, a customer service industry, right? And so to fully understand what the artists are going through, that that allows you to do your job better because you know how to tailor that experience so that they get the most out of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's I mean, I'm primarily a music fan rather than like a an audio fan, you know. So it's uh, you know the the kind of audio engineering aspect is you know is simply the the way you get it from A to B. But like, for me, it's all about, you know, it's all about the music. Mm -hmm. The the music comes first. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because I I do feel like mastering to some degree is like that, you know, it is more of the, um, it it isn't as like, 
I mean, it's technical, but it's not as technical as maybe mixing where you're like getting in super granular with all the individual tracks. You're kind of listening to it more from the perspective of the final listener and hearing that two track and just, you know, you know, trying to make things a little bit more clear as a whole and not not really getting too focused on the weeds there. Um, so, yeah, it kind of makes sense that if, if you're just a fan of music, mastering isn't a bad gig because it's it's listening to music and making it sound better. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Nice. I mean, it's a it's a. That's perfect. That's a perfect explanation of it. I mean, you get to sit and imagine you are the listener. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, you are you are the listener. You're the, you know, you're the first listener, um, yeah. and it's yeah to be able to step back. And you're right; it's not as um, complicated or involved as mixing. Um, I got so much respect for mixing engineers. <laughs> it's just uh, <laughs> it's it takes a level of um, of patience that I don't think my my brain could possibly handle for sure but yeah it's um it, being able to take that step back and hear things as you know as if you were the consumer is is exactly it and i think that's you know it's such a lovely thing to do all day long <laughs> yeah and, and it's like i mean it's not that mastering isn't technical i mean you're using the same tools for the most part as a mixing engineer it's just you know at that point it's already coming to you mixed and it sounds like a song you're not starting to put the puzzle together. It's, it's, it's kind of there already. You're just adding those like final little pieces at the end. Yeah. I think it's, um, it, the thing that sets it apart more than anything, I'm sure you'll agree is just a, for me, it's, it's mindset more than anything else. It's like what you're actually listening for and how you're listening and how you're thinking about it. It's completely mm-hmm. different to, to how you're, how you would think about a mix, like totally different. And absolutely. You'll, you know, I find there's so many funny little things. Like if people, if like, say, for example, a mix engineer has is, is, is missed like a, a click or a pop or something. And occasionally, you know, you'll, you'll sort of, uh, you'll correct it or whatever. And the mix engineer feels like they should like apologize or something. And it's like, man, like you, that's not what you're listening for. But that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm listening for. <laughs> I don't yeah. expect anybody else to catch that. Like that's, that's the job, you know, it's, uh, that being able to, to just tune out and listen to, um, everything as a whole. Like I always use that example of, um, like I, I don't carry any emotional baggage into a session. So if you've spent like the best part of a day slaving over getting that snare sound, like exactly right. And you're so chuffed with it. I, I'm not carrying that into my session. <laughs> I've got no idea about all of that. All I can hear is it's a bit too loud. It's true. And that's, uh, you know, that's it. Like a, there's, there's none of that coming in at mastering. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's an important, enjoyable part of the job. Absolutely. It's, it's almost like the, um, the checklist of things that you need to think about when you're a mixing engineer versus a mastering engineer it's the mixing engineer, I think has a larger checklist to go through. And so it's very easy to overlook some of those things, but the mastering engineer is just like that final set of ears that can really go through everything and, you know, have that, have that objective third party outlook at the mix. And, and you haven't listened to the song a gazillion times either. So, you know, those little details that someone has become used to hearing, they're, they're no longer there for you. And, uh, you know, you get to, you get to really identify those things a lot more easily. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how did you learn to master then? Well, once I decided that it was something that, because when I first sort of 
But when the idea was first introduced that like, oh, this is something that I actually find interesting and that this is something I could see myself doing, it was it was just a case of just immersing myself in as much knowledge as I could possibly find. Um, like speaking to people who I knew, trying to figure out what to do. And I, I mean, like really right from the, from the very, very start, <laughs> you know, like what is a limiter, you know, sort of thing, mm-hmm. things like that. Real basic kind of stuff. I went on um, the Cambridge, you know, the Cambridge audio website, yep. you know, where you can get all of the, sort of unmastered mixes and stuff like that. I made a huge folder for every unmastered mix that I could find. I, you know, set up, I, I was initially working in, in logic because that I'd been obviously as a musician, I don't, I, you know, I kind of got to grips with basically how a DAW works, but then quickly realized that I quickly realized the importance of the, of the separate mindset. So I, 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 I got Reaper and sort of set up like a mastering thing in there and just practiced and practiced and practiced until I was pretty confident that these kind of random tracks that I'd found would sit pretty nicely on a, on a playlist you know, mm-hmm. on Spotify or whatever. And then it was just the case of because I'd been like a working musician for so long, I just had loads of mates who were musicians. I'd made a lot of friends and, you know, a lot of contacts and stuff over the years. And most of my friends were all musicians. So I just reached out and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm pursuing this. I think I'm quite good at it now. (laughs) I wasn't that good, but you know, I think I'm all right at it now. You know, if you're working on anything, send it over, let's have a go. If it doesn't work out, you've lost nothing. Uh, but yeah, and that was, that's how I started. That's how I got started doing it. I love that. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to throw yourself, you know, out there and just take on a couple projects just to, to, to just like validate that you can do it. You know, it's like, take on that challenge, have fun with it and see where it goes. Yeah. And just, and then, and it's completely different kind of doing the, like practicing on your own and doing something for somebody else. Like all of a sudden there's things that you've kind of haven't really thought about. Like, you know, we were talking, you know, before we started recording about being like a uh, customer service industry, like learning how to communicate with people about their music. And, uh, and then of course the kind of added extra pressure of like, God, this is actually somebody else's music that I'm, (laughs) (laughs) that I'm playing with here. Like this is, uh, and it's something that I try to never, ever forget. It's like, how much of yourself you have to give to make a record. Like it, it you're playing with someone's like heart and soul a lot of the time. Mm. You've, you've got to be so respectful of that. So, uh, so yeah, all that kind of, um, I found it really scary. The first, uh, <laughs> the first bunch of times I did it. Yeah. It's kind of interesting though, too, because you know, like you said, you're, you're playing with someone else's, music and they have their vision of what the songs are supposed to sound like and for the most part it's kind of been mixed to sound like the way they want it to be so mm-hmm. when it gets to you as a mastering engineer there's always that um you know hopefully the mix sounds good enough that you, you as the mastering engineer doesn't feel like you need to like change the sonic landscape of it or like the balance of it but sometimes you are going to get those mixes that are maybe like darker than you would normally go for or something like that but that is the band's vision for it you know and mm-hmm. so i think that there is always that kind of that challenge of you know the um 
people are coming to you kind of for your artistic vision on their on their song as well. And and it's like, how do you balance that versus what you've been given and what the artist's vision is for it and all that kind of stuff? So um, when it comes to that kind of stuff, like what's your normal approach to um, to tackling projects like that, where maybe it's like it's not coming to you the way you would ideally love to have it, but like, are you having conversations with the artist or what's that look like for you? Well, I definitely do have conversations with the artist or the producer or the mix engineer about what they are hoping the mastering will achieve mm-hmm. and like kind of how much they want to, you know, me to dig in and how, you know, or how, how set they are on how their mix sounds. But I think more than anything else, this is the advantage of coming to this quite late. So Straight out of school, I just went to work in a record shop and I worked in record shops, you know, on and off for years and years and years. And I'm just, I'm such a music obsessive, like I'm just such a huge music fan, always have been, and I can't see that going anywhere. Like I listen to music all the time. So by the time I actually came to doing this, this sort of professionally, I, I kind of, I just know what records sound like and I know like so so you talk about you know maybe something will come and it's a little bit dull but that's the that's the artistic vision of the band well if you've listened to enough music and enough music in lots and lots and lots of different genres and you just and and all you're really familiar with is the end product because you've just been a fan you've just been a consumer you kind of know that like okay well that's meant to sound like that because that's what music in this genre (laughs) <laughs> that's what it sounds like. That's like a, like, I know that's an aesthetic uh, choice rather than being a, like a tonal balance error. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, so you kind of, I think the more, the more music you listen to and the more familiar you are with, with the musical landscape. And I, I don't, and I mean like that, like the history of it as well, like just as much as you can possibly, you'll never, you'll never know everything. You'll never have learned <laughs> Every, every everything there is to know about this stuff yeah which means you can just keep learning forever absolutely absolutely it's it's kind of interesting too because i feel like um you know when it comes to mixing a lot of people will say like you should niche down and become known for like you know you're the metal guy or the punk guy or whatever <laughs> but i feel like the more i talk with mastering engineers the more i realize that they're just so diverse in the type of stuff that they work on. And maybe that's just because it's the nature of the job. Like, you know, you have to have a lot of different clients to make a, make a living that way. Um, and so maybe you need to take on more projects, but I feel like it kind of goes to what you're saying where like the more music you listen to, the more you're just getting used to like, what's an acceptable final product in any genre. And like you learn to, to, to go lean into the artistic vision of these artists and, and, and whatever sound they have, you know? Yeah, exactly. And there's no, like, there's no, there's no one size fits all like template for this, for any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's so much subjectivity and there's so much uh, like uh, diversity between all of it's not just between genres, but, but you know, it's just no, no one thing is the same. I know that's like a cliche that you always hear mastering engineers say, you know, every track's different, but like it really is true. And it's different on multiple, multiple levels. So then when you go into a new project and when someone sends you something, what is your typical mindset or approach going into that? What are you listening for right from the beginning? Well, right from the beginning, I mean, the first thing is obviously a, like a critical listen. Because, I mean, you, we mentioned earlier about mastering being like a kind of, like a, a sort of stepped back kind of, uh, you know, you're looking at the bigger picture. But 
initially, I think you do have to really, you have to really listen critically because you're listening for mistakes, listening to things that, that are technically, that technically might be wrong. So, you know, you're listening for your clicks and pops, you're listening for, you know, any bad edits or a fade being cut out or someone talking on the mic over a cymbal ring out, you know, things like that, that sort of initially you just think, are they intentional or are they something that needs to be fixed? Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes, you know, being a click or a pop or something, but sometimes if it's a, you know, someone talking over the end of a cymbal, it might be intentional. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's obviously something you then go back to the artist and say, hey, you did, just flag this up. Is this meant to be here? Just, you know, I don't want to kind of uh, step on anyone's artistic vision. Um, and then once all that's in place, I mean, I use, I just do that straight in. I just load things straight into RX um, for my initial listen. Why RX? Because I can see everything for a start. So sometimes you can just obviously see without mm-hmm. even hearing it that something's going to be weird. And obviously you can see your sample rate and your bit depth and all that sort of stuff. Um, but more than anything else is because it's, it's a bit of a pain to actually do anything in RX, <laughs> like to change anything. So like it puts me off just like instantly reaching for an EQ or something like that. Like you just have to listen to it and not touch it. Because I think if you just load it straight into your whatever mastering software or whatever you're using and you instantly hear that it's like, oh, that's a bit dull. The first thing you're going to do is reach for an EQ. And I just, I think the first listen should be about checking for those mistakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that how you do it? I, I've never put it directly into RX, but I, I like that approach. It makes sense to me that, you know, it, it kind of, it forces the objectivity, I suppose, you know, as opposed to just like, you know, going in through your emotions of like what your normal chain is or what your normal setup would be or something like that. Right. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting approach, but also, I guess, I guess the way you're talking about it, where the very first part of your process is to almost check for like the mix mistakes, I guess, I guess that's maybe the best way to sum it up, but you know, like things that should have been fixed in the mix or like edits or whatever. Um, RX is like a really handy tool for that too, because you know when you find those clicks and pops, you can fix it there and and set set yourself up for success as you start to then move down the chain and you know add your EQs and compressors and all that kind of stuff like that. So, yeah, that's an interesting approach. I like that. Um, I think it's really cool, and it yeah would definitely force you to just enjoy the music, just listen to it. You know, well that yeah, that's another thing. Like you can't. I want to be able to hear what the song is trying to do. Like I want to get a good impression of what the song's actually trying to convey, or what it's like, what it's trying to achieve, you know. And that's that's so different based on genre and and everything. You know, it's like you're listening to a track, going right. What's what's the purpose of this of this track? Mm-hmm. Is this is this supposed to be like in your face and making me want to dance, or is this supposed to be kind of something delicate and heartfelt that's making me, you know, like what's it? what's it trying to make me feel? Because I think that's, that's a great starting point for anything. Like once mm-hmm. you've established what you're trying to, um, to highlight in the track, what you're trying to accentuate, what you're trying to enhance, like what, how can you make that feeling come across as effectively as possible? I find listening to the song all the way through is a, is pretty invaluable for, uh, 
for learning that. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the mastering engineers I've talked to on the podcast, it's like there there is either there's there's one of two approaches. There's the approach you take where it's like you listen through it all the way through and you're like you're not doing work on it. You're just kind of creating your like list of things that you want to do. And then there's another school of thought where it's like that gut reaction is like the most important decision. And so like some of those people will just like jump in right away and start messing with things. And both are valid, valid ways of approaching it. But to me, it does kind of make sense to do it more the way you're talking about. Because if you start messing around with it, you don't know what's left in the song. So like you might be doing things that are just going to, you know, accentuate problems later on in the mix. You know, if you start adding EQ and all that kind of stuff. So it does make sense to just like really enjoy the song as a listener. And, you know, if you find those critical mistakes, like clicks and pops and edits and that kind of thing, then like, yeah, those are the things you got to address first. So, yeah, I mean, they're easier to miss if you're like straight into like sort of thinking about things from a sort of EQing or, a you know, dynamic control point of view. Mm. But however, I do completely agree with those like, working intuitively and those first impressions being super, super important. They're probably the best, like they'll be the best decisions that you make all session, like the ones that you initially feel, but you can still get those impressions obviously by doing the listen. I just, I personally find them, uh, they're a little bit more fully formed and a little bit more intentional. If I take the time to sit and listen rather than just jump straight in, you know, that makes sense. It's so tempting. Like, I don't, I think if I just dumped a track straight into WaveLab without doing that bit first, I wouldn't be able to help it. I'd be, I'd be straight in, just like, oh, yeah, this definitely, no, 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 no. And I think that's setting myself up for, uh, for more work down the line. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just like how, like, I know my own, uh, <laughs> I know my own failings with this stuff. <laughs> no, but it's true, though, right? It's like whether you're mixing or mastering, I think that like you kind of need to, you kind of need to like listen to the music first and come up with a game plan for what you want to do with it. And by doing it the way you're talking about, you're at least like giving yourself the time to create that checklist and like let those ideas develop and, and, you know, hear what you need to actually do as opposed to just like jumping on the first problem you hear and then trying to fix that and then potentially ignoring all of those other things that you should be adding to your checklist. You know, it's like you're, you're creating, you're potentially creating problems for yourself that then create, you know, more issues later on. So it kind of does make sense to just have that, that first objective listen, come up with that list of things you want to tackle and go from there. Cause yeah, I'm sure by the end of that first listen, it's not just like you listening completely for clicks and pops You're You're probably by the end of it realizing, oh, okay, maybe this mix does sound too dark. Maybe we got to brighten this up or, you know, there's, there's these ringy frequencies here and that and here and there. So, you know, it, it kind of does make sense to just tackle that, make that list first, I guess. Yeah, and of course your brain starts thinking of like, oh, okay, I can hear that I know that sort of this piece of gear or this CQ move or this whatever will will work nicely for this. So, uh, you know, you kind of almost create your pathway in advance. Makes sense. So then ultimately to you, you know, once you've once you've gone through that first path and your first pass and you've listened to it and you now know, okay, there's no clicks, no pops, and anything like that. What's your typical approach from there? Like, do you have a like a kind of a traditional order of tools that you use, or you know, what's that look like from there? So I work hybrid these days. Um, I used to work. I used to work completely in the box for a long, long time um, for various various reasons um but in the last year i've i've expanded into a more of a hybrid setup so 
the big difference that that's made in the initial decision making is deciding is making a decision whether the track needs to come out of the box or not. And if it does, then, or if I feel that it would be beneficial to come out of the box, then the hardware is something that is like, I do have a set chain for that. Um, it's not all set in stone in that it obviously can all, you know, everything can be bypassed and all the rest of it. But I do have a kind of, um, I've got a very modest, but, uh, quite versatile chain of outboard gear, which for a good mix where nothing kind of super surgical needs to happen, we can get it 90% of the way there, if not more through the analog stuff. Um, so yeah, if that's the decision, then it, it goes into wave lab, it gets some analog processing, comes back into wave lab. And then from then on it's software as needed. The aim is that's just a limiter. Um, but yeah, obviously something else might need to happen. You might need to break out something a little bit more um, like a surgical EQ or some kind of, uh, you know, like a specialist tool. Mm-hmm. You know, something like, I don't know, like like Tooth or, you know, <laughs> something that uh, that you can't get in hardware form. Yeah. So as far as the hardware setup that you have, would you mind running us through like what you actually have in your in your rack there? No, not at all. So it's um, it goes into we've got a Heritage Audio Synth EQ um, at the start, so that sorts out any filtering um, and kind of nice general kind of lifts to the highs and the lows. Um, it's that also runs in MS as well, um, which is nice. We can do something nice with that. Uh, it's also got a couple of transformers in it as well, so. If you take it out of bypass, it's it's like a nice sounding thing anyway. Um, then that runs into a Neve 8803 EQ. So because I've got the shelves on the Synth EQ, that's basically four bands of parametric EQ. Uh, even though the lows and the highs, you can't change the change the Q, but um, still, you don't often need to. Um, then that runs into an SSL Fusion um, for all of the nice little tricks that they do and i've got the ssl bus plus compressor um running into the insert of the fusion so by the time we get out of all that we've had some decent eq some kind of coloration and dynamics options from the fusion and from the bus plus so and all of those units are quite um they're quite versatile they do quite a lot um lots of little tricks that you can deploy on them. Mm-hmm. So by the time it comes back in, most of what you need to have done will have been done. That's awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of the, the chain that you've got and, and yeah, it uh, it makes sense if you've got the hardware for it, why not use it? Right? Um, well, but yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm curious to know, like, did you, what inspired that decision for you to go hybrid? Because I, I was listening to another podcast that you were on a while ago and, and you, at that point you were all in the box and, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I wasn't sure if that was just because of a, a workflow perspective or, you know, what the, but what what inspired the, the hybrid setup? Well, there was quite a few reasons why. Because I've tried quite a lot of different approaches to this because I'm kind of, I'm not um, like I'm not a traditionalist with any of this stuff. I, I don't uh, I don't believe that in order to get fantastic results doing this you have to be sat in like 
a, a purpose-built room with speakers that cost a hundred thousand pounds and all that sort of stuff. I, I don't, I don't believe in that at all. So I was very keen on sort of uh, on the advancements in technology and the ability to do all this in the box. And don't get me wrong, I think you can do amazing work in the box. And I was more than happy with the <laughs> with the mastering that I was doing for quite a few years. Um, but I think. And and the other, you know, the the other thing about it, from a kind of you know just an honest and realistic point of view, I come from a working class background. I started my business by myself. I could not afford to spend that kind of money. Um, I I spent the money on good monitors, and I sit in a nice space that um, that I built with a with a couple of friends, uh, which is in, like in a basement that we took on the lease. Um, so yeah, at that point it was like, well, I've got to start earning money. Like I can't put myself into loads of debt as a, you know, as a sort of fledgling business. It's, um, you know, I've, I've got family. Yeah. You know, I've got, I, I can't, I, this, this has to be a moneymaker. This has to like, and I, I don't mean that in a kind of uh, God, that sounded really kind of awful. Didn't no, it? I know, I know exactly what you're saying. Be a money, I just meant this has to be like a, this has to be a profitable business. It can't just be an expensive hobby. So Absolutely. putting myself into lots of debt was just never on the cards. So once I'd been doing it for a few years and, you know, got some good credits under my belt and it was, you know, like a stable kind of living, um, I just decided to invest in a, in a couple of nice bits just so that I could, so I'd have something else to offer, I think. I want to make sure that I can offer people kind of every type of thing that they want, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I'm kind of, you know, I don't, I... I think it's another folly to think that people, that most people will come to mastering engineers because of their gear. I, I don't think most, most people do. At it's true. All. Some people do. And I completely understand the appeal of like going to like an attended session at like, you know, at Abbey road or whatever, and just being in amongst all this amazing gear and tape machines and stuff. And like, that's a really exciting and valid experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people seem to just, they just want to work with someone they like and they just want to get their music sounding as good as possible. Of course. It, it's so interesting too, because it's like, on one hand, the the thing that they're hiring you for is the end product. It's like, they want their music to sound incredible. And most people, I think, when it comes to the final product, don't care how you got there. You know, as long as it sounds good in the end, that's all they care about. But there is that other element of it, which you mentioned, which is that, like for an attendant session. Yeah, there's like that experience. You know, you're, you feel like you're in this creative environment and like it's exciting to be in that. But and, and I totally get that. Like, you know, there's nothing cooler than being in a, a nice studio and seeing all this cool gear and, you know, yeah, someone who knows exciting. how to run it and all this and that. But but definitely at the end of the day, like that experience can get very tainted if the product in the end sucks, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've always, got, I've always been a, a little bit, um, sometimes I think the value of an attended session, I do question because for most people, they'll come to us, you know, a, a mastering facility where the speakers are going to be good. Like obviously, you know, mastering engineers, need to have speakers where you can actually hear everything really, really well and really clearly. So I think most people, when they hear their music on speakers like that in a nice sounding room, really loud, it it's just going to sound brilliant. 
to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's going to sound great, and they're going to be like, "Wow, this is this is amazing! It's so loud and it's so brilliant. I've never heard it sound like this." But that's not how. But that's not really giving them an impression of what the mu- that what their music really sounds like. It's true. The, you know, the acid test is going to be taking it home to the stereo. That they stereo. God, how old am I? To, you know, putting it on whatever they're they listen to music on and listening to it, and it's got a, it's got a sound as good as everything else they listen to. Mm-hmm. So, and if that's not going to translate, then the attended session almost wasn't worth doing. I don't think. Of course, and, you know, I'd much prefer to work on stuff in a room because I know that room. I know my room. I know my speakers. I know what everything sounds like, and I know how it's going to translate. So I'd much rather work on it like that and then send it to someone and go, right, you listen to this how you listen to music. I don't care where that is, like on your earbuds or in the car or whatever. And uh, yeah, that'll give them a much more accurate impression of how happy they are than sitting behind me and hearing it really loud. <laughs> totally, yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with that because, yeah, at the end of the day, like they need to know that it sounds good on their setup cuz that's that's what they know best you know you know you know your setup best so you know they might hear things in your room that they're like i don't know that sounds too basic or whatever and you're like no that's the way it's supposed to be like i know this sure. room and you know and and so um yeah it, it's, there is always like that kind of weird weird thing when it comes to attended sessions of like yeah you're creating that experience for someone but is it actually going to get them the results that they're looking for you know <laughs> yeah that's it and and i did i mean i do like i actually like doing attended sessions i think they're really nice but um i like the um i said this before my one of my favorite uh types of attended session is when you're doing an album and all of the processing has already been done like all of the audio has been approved I really like at that point to actually have someone there or even the whole band or the producer, whatever, I don't mind to go, right, here's all the tracks. Let's get them all into a session and let's, let's piece this album together exactly how you want it. So, you know, we'll be concentrating on the, the transitions between the tracks and the gaps and the timings and stuff. So that at the end we can go, right, there we go. It's finished. Yeah. And, and, you know, you send people away with a, with a pen drive, you know, that there you go, there's your mastered album. That's that's a really nice, satisfying thing to do. And it also is stuff that if a band is particular about those kind of things or an artist particular about sort of segues and transition stuff, it saves a lot of emails. <laughs> For sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's definitely advantages to both to both approaches and and um I think when it comes to all that kind of stuff you're talking about with transitions and all that, like yeah, having someone in the room definitely helps for sure. But it's it's almost like those are the decisions that aren't necessarily like the big sonic decisions. It's more just like arrangement stuff, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of funny. There, there's that there's that like placebo effect almost of like if you're in a room that has amazing stuff, like you think it's you think it's going to sound incredible or whatever, you know. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, it still does come down to that home listen and, and making sure it sounds good. It, it reminds me. It's funny because I um so I used to rent out a studio space. In a in a bigger studio, and in one of the rooms, they had recently purchased this massive like studer console, and it was huge. It looked it looked very impressive. Yeah. But um, but for the longest time, they 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 were wiring it up and like just getting it up and running. But they couldn't not have sessions in like you know the, the studio still needed to make business um, and make money. So for, for the longest time, the guys that had that room, 
they had this little like Behringer mixer, like like eight channel thing that they kept stored underneath the big console, and like <laughs> and it was enough to run most of the sessions that they were doing there. But people would come in all the time and see this massive board, and like they would turn on some of the lights on it just to make it look like it was, it was running through there. <laughs> and but they did everything on this little Behringer board, and people would be like, "Oh, this is so cool!" You know, like got this massive board. And at the end of the day, it kind of made me realize that like, yeah, you know, yeah, people don't. Like there's that illusion of like the cool big studio, but at the end of the day, like the product is what matters, and however you get there, you get there, and uh, and yeah, sometimes like sometimes that experience is all you need to do to make a satisfied person, but uh, but at the end of the day, like really, the, the sound is what matters, and absolutely, know. and and you're paying for someone's um, you're paying for someone's knowledge and their expertise in knowing how to do that. I mean that like an expert operating that Behringer desk is going to get a hell of a lot better results than someone who doesn't really know what they're doing on the huge studio desk. Exactly. Like it's, you know, it's, that's always, that's always the case. You're paying for someone's decisions. You're paying for someone's, uh, like expertise in how to get you there. I mean, Hmm. I think, I think, um, I was thinking about this. I think that's what people talk about, you know, when they talk about, um, you know, there's the whole thing about mastering the whole, like it's, it's such a dark art. You know, it's so mysterious and all the rest of it. And then a few years ago, there's been this like big push of like trying to demystify the mastering process. And it's kind of like, it's almost trying to tell people that it's, um, that it's easy and it's, oh, it's just an EQ and a compressor, the same as mixing. And I think it's missing the point. I think the dark art thing and the mystery thing and the reason why people just go, oh my God, like how, how does, how have you done this? How does it sound like this? Is because you've thought about it differently to to how they've thought it you've made it you've heard something and you've made a decision that maybe the artist hasn't heard or the producer hasn't heard or the mix engineer hasn't heard because you're coming in completely fresh without that baggage and i think like it's not the gear you know it's like i would like you know going back to that desk you know i'd much prefer to pay someone who really knows how to use that Behringer desk <laughs> than, you know, than someone who, what's that amazing quote? Um, the guy, uh, what's his name? The Phineas, the guy who works with Billy Eilish. Yeah. That amazing quote he said recently, where he says, oh, people talk about going to all these big studios and I just do stuff in the bedroom. He goes, every big studio I've ever been to has always taken them 15 minutes to find an aux cable. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> I just like, I love that. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I I hundred percent agree. You know, I think that there's um you know, you can get amazing results from a home studio and you don't need all that fancy gear. And I think more and more these days, especially with like COVID, I feel like people have just learned to accept that like unattended sessions are probably the way things are gonna keep going, you know. Um yeah. and, and it works out for everyone, I think. I think the engineers on one hand, it's like when you're not distracted by having a client in the back of the room, like you can focus on the music a little bit more. And I, I think it's just to everyone's benefit. You know, it's they they get the product, they listen to it at home, like like with their true feelings and, you know, knowing their listening environment and that kind of thing. Um, and it probably allows people to work faster when, yeah, when someone isn't in the room. Yeah, I, th- I think I would... I'm almost certain that I make better decisions without without the pressure of having somebody else there as well. Um, I know it's more tiring 
because you're not only having to do your job, but you're also having to, you know, there's a, like, like social situations can be tiring. They just can be exhausting, Mm. especially for people like us who do spend a lot of time on our own. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but having said that though, I'm not like, if someone wants to come to the studio, I'm more than happy to like meet someone for a coffee and like, you know, they can play something that they like through the speakers and stuff. I think it's a nice, it is a nice thing. Cause I think um, the more kind of social you can make the job, it, it, it is, it is nice. It feels nicer. I think. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like what you and I were talking about before we hit record where, you know, you're part of this uh, mastering collective with Katie and, um, and, and some other people. And you were saying that one of the real benefits to it is that there's this social element to it. And yeah. you know, uh, we, we tend to just be like little hermits that work on our own and then to have people that we can actually communicate with. And there is definitely that benefit to it as well. So um, yeah, the, I, I think you need to just find that balance for you. Like what works in terms of attendance sessions or, you know, client interaction, like however that looks, you know, client interaction doesn't necessarily mean they need to be in the studio with you. It could just be that like you, you deliver their final masters over like a beer or whatever. And, you know, you just like have a good, good day and like hang out with them, you know? And so, um, there's there's lots of ways to have that, that social element to the process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I really like speaking to people and like client interaction is one of my favorite things. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I, I sometimes feel guilty even saying the word client. Like, I, I you know, because it kind of feels like more of a, a sort of creative um, like a collaboration than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dirty word. I know. I, mean, I, even, I totally feel that. Every time I say that word, I'm like, oh, like it just sounds cringy, you know? <laughs> oh, it sounds like you're an accountant or something, doesn't it? But, it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, obviously, you know, it, it is, it is, a, they are clients, you know, it's due to your job. But, um, but yeah, I, I think. I think creating a nice collaboration and creating a nice rapport with the people that you're working with is, is absolutely invaluable. Like Mm -hmm. it's it's so important because I think more than anything else in trying to, I was having a conversation with another mastering engineer actually, um, the other day called Mark Hammond um, and we were chatting about stuff and we were talking about, uh, we're talking about AI and, you know, and that sort of stuff. And we were talking about like, what are you offering? that's different. Like, cause if you want your stereo bus process, there are a thousand ways to do that. And there are a thousand ways to do it that are cheap and, um, will probably get a lot of people just where they want to be. They want it to the right loudness and they want it, you know, sounding a little bit sweeter or whatever. So what are we doing? Like, what are we doing as mastering engineers? That's, um, what are we offering that is setting us apart? And I honestly think that the human interaction and the confidence that you can send artists away with is, is it's potentially it's the most important part of the job. It's something that I really place a lot of, uh, a, a lot of value on because, because I've been a musician myself. I know that in order to get anywhere, in order to, to, I mean, we're in a, we're in a sort of, uh, we're in a time where artists and musicians stuff. This the world is so atomized. There's there's millions and millions and millions of people all trying to like shout the loudest for attention. And if you don't have that one hundred percent belief 
in what you're doing. If you don't believe that that track that you've got is absolutely killer, like you're, you're, you're dead in the water before you even started. So if I can send an artist away with a track that they know is brilliant because we've, we've talked about it, we've worked on it. I've, you know, I've done everything I can to make it good and I'm sending them away going, look, this, this, you've done amazing. This is a brilliant job. Then like, they're going to carry that, that confidence and that enthusiasm through into how they promote, how they perform, like how they interact with their fans, everything. And it will make that, track or whatever we've we've done more successful and i think that's the thing absolutely yeah i i 100 agree with all of that um yeah i guess you know at the end of the day it's just we're we're just trying to create like we're all we're all in this to enjoy the music and have fun totally yeah yeah that's really what it comes down to right it's like we're we're trying to enjoy the music ourselves as the mastering engineers and create make this mix sound even better and and just really get into it. And we're, we're providing that same experience for the artists that we work with. And, and, you know, as long as, as long as at the end of the day, they hear their mix sound better then they're happy with it. You know, that's, yeah, I guess that's exactly. the easiest thing to boil it down to when it comes to mastering. Yeah. And I, and I, I love it as well. Like I, there's very, very, it's very rare that I work with like a track or an artist who I just kind of don't like. It's, it really is rare. And I think it's, um, I, I don't really know how that's happened because <laughs> don't get me wrong. There's a lot of music I don't like, but I, the people I work with, they're just like, there are some, there are so many incredible artists making music right now. There really is. There's some outstanding music being made in like yep. just really top tier. So yeah, I, I feel, um, I feel really, really lucky to be able to work with it every day. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, one thing I wanted to touch on that you kind of, you were talking about a little bit earlier, you were talking about um, monitoring setups and how, Mm. you know, it is, you'd mentioned that like, you know, you feel like you don't need to have like the really big expensive monitors as a mastering engineer. Like you can work out of a smaller situation, smaller house situation or whatever, and still get great results. But you also mentioned that, that said, you still need to have monitors that you can hear things accurately with. Um, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on I, I, one, one thing I noticed when I was looking at pictures of your setup was that you, you had a sub. And, yeah. um, and I'm curious to know like a little bit more about how you incorporate the sub into your setup and whether you think uh, like, do you, do you find that helps with the mastering uh, overall? Like or maybe, maybe tell us a bit, a little bit about the setup that you have to begin with. Okay. Yeah, sure. So yeah. So I use a Neumann, um, system i've got the kh310 satellites with the kh750 sub um now i really believe in the sub because i believe that you can't master what you can't hear and the fact that that sub can reproduce incredibly low frequencies is great but the thing that surprised me the most like the biggest revelation when I started working with a sub wasn't necessarily the bass extension because I was expecting that. One thing that made the biggest difference was taking that weight away from the satellites. Interesting. So all of a sudden the satellites had loads more headroom so that they like the clarity of the mid range improved. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh wow. It felt like a 
got a new pair of speakers. It was really, um, it was really revelatory because they weren't working so hard to try and, you know, replicate, you know, sub 80 Hertz stuff, you know, everything from 80 was sent down to the sub. So once we got it kind of calibrated, um, which took a little bit of effort, actually, uh, I, I'm not particularly technical with this sort of stuff. I had to get my friend Doug to come and, uh, do some measuring and, <laughs> and get our sub, uh, aligned properly. Um, cause I've got, we've got, we've got a slightly awkward desk in our studio, which means I can't quite put the sub kind of exactly where I would want it. So we had to do some, some measuring to make sure that we were getting accurate, uh, you know, everything was in phase and mm-hmm. you know, we weren't sort of getting any horrible pockets anywhere. Um, it's not, it's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty good. Like it's, it's a, it's a pretty good room. You can walk around and it's not, you don't get like crazy, insane, uh, differences in, in bass response all over the place. It's, it's not bad. That's cool. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's interesting that you were talking about how it actually makes your speakers sound better. You know, I think that's a, a really interesting thing. Yeah. And I was, I wasn't expecting it. It's not, um, it's not why I bought the sub at all, but it was like, it was the thing I noticed more. Yeah. I was just like, Oh wow. You know, of course I can hear the extra octave. Uh, but yeah, God, I, I hadn't, I hadn't planned on it being so revelatory in the, in it was the mids more than anything else. Like the sort of the mid range just really sort of opened up, which was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think, um, well, I, a friend of mine came and um, we listened to some music and he works with the same, like the same satellites as mine, but he doesn't have the sub. And his, uh, <laughs> I remember him saying, wow, I can hear the whole of the kick drum. And I thought that was, <laughs> that was a really nice kind of, uh, that was a really nice way of putting it. Like with the sub in, you can hear the whole drum. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Well, you also mentioned something that I think is a, a really uh, powerful statement, which is that like you can't master what you can't hear, and that makes sense. If you have the sub, you're extending that range, and you're 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 now hearing things that you haven't heard before. Um, do you feel like mixing engineers should be working with the sub then? Because it would be the same sort of idea, right? I, I must admit, I've always found it odd that um, the idea that it was okay to mix on on like smaller speakers, but it wasn't okay to master. Like I thought that I, yeah, I, I must admit I'm, I'm not a mix engineer. So really I don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but it would make sense to me if you were mixing on, on the biggest speakers you could find really, because uh, yeah, I don't, surely you're not hearing stuff. Surely. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to, to look back at your clientele and see like, which engineers have sent new mixes where they have mixed on a sub versus the ones that haven't and like see if there actually is a difference in how that low end is, is handled, you know? Yeah. And maybe there's not at all. I just, uh, I definitely feel like it's something that I find comforting because I, if I, if I need to isolate those super low frequencies and really hear what's going on, then I can mm-hmm. in a way that I couldn't in, in uh, you know, at home or whatever. I mean, that's the other thing. The sub, obviously I, I'd love to work from home, but I I can't really, I live, I live in Liverpool in a really sort of standard red brick terrace. And uh, yeah, if I was playing music at 80 decibels, 10 hours a day here, (laughs) I wouldn't be very popular with my neighbors and I like my neighbors. So I don't want to upset them. 
Yeah, I, that is one of the things with the subs. They they definitely travel. The sound travels through. <laughs> I, I experimented with the sub at my my previous house, and uh, we, we had a condo, and um, you know, I had my little mix room in there, and I I borrowed a sub for a week just to like experiment with it, but like right away, my wife was like, "What the hell? Like, you you can't have this. Like, this is way too loud." <laughs> you know? Yeah, now I'm in a bigger space, and I'm like, it's still a house, but like, I feel like I can maybe get away with it. I should try try it out a little bit. <laughs> I mean, my house is over a hundred years old. It'd probably fall down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It, it is interesting because when it comes to choosing monitors, obviously, you know, I think a lot of people just kind of pick whatever works for them, or, you know, within their budget. And I get that. And one of the things I always tell my coaching clients is that, like, yeah, you might you might have whatever monitors you have, and maybe you don't have the sub in there and you can't hear the low end or you know or maybe your your monitors are lacking in the mid-range maybe there's a dip or that kind of thing but i don't i don't necessarily personally think that you need to have the sub i think you just need to have like systems where you can be checking to make sure that you have that full range right like i think one of the reasons why a lot of people like the car test is because most people have some sort of sub in their car so it's like if you just move your mix to your car and you hear that low end and it feels the way it's supposed to in your car then mission accomplished you know at the end of the day this is all about translation so utilize whatever systems you already have most people have more than one set of speakers that they listen to and you know whether it's your car or your studio monitors or some like boom box or whatever it is to like find those different um you know frequency bands as long as it sounds the way it's supposed to across different sets of speakers you know it translates and i think that that is probably the thing that will help the most and then when they send it to someone like yourself who does have this really nice system that does have the sub and everything is like properly uh, configured to to you know give a nice balanced even sound. I I think it should translate pretty well on your end, and you just you clean up whatever the issues are because you have that those ears, right? Definitely, I I do completely agree, and I think it's um I don't yeah no one should be going into debt for this. Like it's um you know the reality is I've got to work quickly as well. That's that's the other thing. I think that mixing. Um, mixing, you, you spend a lot of time on mixing. You spend a mm-hmm. lot of time getting it right. Whereas I, I, I have to work quite quickly in order to make a living. Yeah. Well, that was one reason why I was very curious about your switch to the hybrid setup, because I imagine that switching to the hybrid setup would have slowed down your process. It, funnily enough, it's not made a huge amount of difference in, for, uh, in terms of speed, you know, because I find that if I'm using the hardware, I can get, I can get to where I need to go quicker. Seemingly, hmm. I think it's just because of the um, because of the limitations of what you've got to play with, and because everything's being done by ear. You're not typing anything. You're not playing. You know, you're not you're moving a mouse or anything like that. You're not fiddling. You're just going da 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 da. Right, this is this is mm-hmm. good. That first pass tends to be a lot quicker. So what you kind of lose in in printing in real time, you gain in not fiddling about as much. <laughs> yeah, that's what I find anyway. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Right on, man. Well, one last question I've got for you that I think we'll try to wrap it all up. Yeah. Ultimately, in the end, what makes a great mastered mix to you? Well, funnily enough, I've never thought about this until <laughs> you, until you sent me. An email a little while back saying, you know, with with a with a few kind of questions on it, and I knew I was just like, how do you know when I'm 
what makes a great massive mix? How do you know when it's finished? And I was really, and I thought, God, I've never really thought about that before. So I've been thinking about it a lot and I've come back, I've come back to one word. And that one word is distraction. I don't, I, when I'm listening to a track that I'm working on, I don't want to hear a single thing that distracts me from the song itself. So I don't want to hear any production. I don't want to hear any, anything that's annoying, like in, you know, any, any harshness, any kind of anything that's just poking out and distracting me from, from what that song is doing and what it's trying to say. And once I can sit and listen to the song all the way through and not be distracted by anything, it's done. That's the answer I came up with. (laughs) I love that. No, that's, that's absolutely true. And I think that, uh, you know, it, kind of ties back to what we talked about at the very beginning of when you were talking about your process and how you're listening for all those kind of distractions and in, in the song, you know, like the clicks and pops and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, really, if you can eliminate that and you can just like enhance the song, make it sound better than mission accomplished. Yeah. I just want to sit back and enjoy it. And if I can enjoy that all the way through and not want to correct anything, we're, we're done. We're, we're good. I love Press it, man. <laughs> Well, that's a perfect way to wrap up. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. Um, it's just uh, at Stephen underscore Kerrison. Um, you can find me at the Weird Jungle website as well, which is www.weirdjungle.com. Um, and I've also got my own studio website, which is www.talltreesaudiomastering.com. Um, but yeah, Instagram, just send me a message. Like I'll always reply. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you again for taking the time to do, to do this. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Honestly, absolute pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the chat. So that was my interview with Stephen Carrison, and I really enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was really interesting to learn more about his process and his philosophies on things, and to also learn a little bit more about his setup and how he made the switch from being completely in the box to using a hybrid setup. And I thought it was really interesting that he was saying that switching to a hybrid setup hasn't slowed him down. Because for me, I've always thought of working in analog as a bit of a slower process because there's more to connect and you, you know, you're twiddling with all the equipment a little bit more and then you got to go back into the box. There's a lot more routing and all that stuff. But I think what Stephen said is true there that If the gear allows you to work faster because you're getting the results you want faster, then it doesn't really matter whether you're in the box or with analog gear. It's all about getting the results the fastest you can. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting to chat about that. And I also thought it was really interesting to hear about how incorporating a subwoofer into his setup has actually helped his monitors work better and more efficiently. It got me thinking, I haven't used subwoofers in my home studio in so long. So now it's got me wondering, maybe I should give it a shot again now that I'm in a, in a bit of a different space where I think I can get away with a little bit more noise here. So I'm definitely gonna have to try that out. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking for tips on how to create pro-sounding recordings and mixes from your home studio. On that website, I have a ton of great resources designed to help make that process easy for you. And one of which that I want to point you to is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step, showing you exactly what to pay attention to throughout the entire process, what tools to use, what to be listening for, how to dial in settings, all that kind of stuff. It really eliminates the guesswork of the process. So make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. And yeah, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.